Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, some of our favorite stories from 2023. Appalachia saw challenge and calamity, but people found joy and strength. Singing has always been a joy. When I sing and I feel God's love and His mercy, I know that He's with me. An old family tradition is connecting with a new generation. And they're like, man, I've never tasted anything like this before. So yeah, so go put your corporate sauces down and get some really good stuff here that has no preservatives in it. And surprises hide just off the interstate. I think that it's just pretty cool that we're the first and only people ever to get married in front of the world's largest teapot. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. 2023 has been a year marked by recovery. The world is still rebounding from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Eastern Kentucky is still building back after the devastating 2022 floods. A lot of Appalachia sees occasional flooding, but the 2022 floods in Kentucky were particularly severe, killing 45 people and displacing thousands. We've featured several stories from our friends in Kentucky, including Nicole Musgrave. Nicole is the lead editor of our Folkways reporting project. She lived in the affected area and was part of a volunteer group helping people muck out and gut homes during cleanup. One of those homes belongs to James and Ruby Boggs. They live in Millstone on the North Fork of the Kentucky River. A month after Nicole was there as a volunteer, she returned to catch up with the Boggs family and brought us this story about the joy that comes from the soothing music of a family guitar. On the day of the flood, James and Ruby Boggs had about four and a half feet of water rushing through their two-story house. I was here a few weeks after the flood with the volunteer group. We helped tear out drywall and flooring with the Boggs' daughter, Darina Dunbar. I'm back now a month later, and Darina takes me inside to show me their progress. Well, it looks a lot different since I was last year. Yeah, we got, uh, you know, they, we had this donated to us and this donated to us. Just got it yesterday. Some insulation and some drywall? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Darina's in her 50s and grew up in this house. Music was always a part of daily life for the family. And it remains important today. When we have Thanksgiving, we have Christmas, anything, we all start singing. It's all music. i got a brother who plays the harmonica. I sing. My other brother sings, plays guitar. Now I have a granddaughter who's picking up the guitar and playing, and she can yodel like my dad. <laughs> she can. Darina's parents were part of a well-known gospel group in the area called the Happy Notes. The Happy Notes played on the local radio station and at funerals and revivals. They even recorded an eight-track that Darina sang on. Darina's parents, James and Ruby, are in their 70s now, and they don't perform as much as they used to. Lately, Ruby's voice has started giving out. I've actually worn my voice out where we've sang so much for so many years, you know, and, um, and I'm not ashamed to say that I'm, I'm very loud. <laughs> but James and Ruby still sing and play at their church and with family. So in their house filled with floodwaters, one of the things they were most worried about was James's guitar. Forty-seven years we lived here, we lost everything down there. And my guitar was in here. The guitar was downstairs, in a case, propped up in a corner of the living room. I figured it was destroyed. When the water receded, James spotted the guitar case and all the mess. It fell apart as soon as he opened it. He pulled the guitar out and looked it over. There was a little mud on the neck, and the strings needed to be replaced. But it wasn't warped or cracked. So James decided to give it a test. I said, oh, Lord, how much is Ruby out to date? If it it rang, it'll be all right. So I got it now. Even though the guitar rang, Darina says it still needed some work. 
my younger brother, Duran, took it to his house, and he cleaned it and shined it and put all brand-new strings on it. And the case that he had that fell apart, you know, we just got rid of it, and my brother got him a case and put the guitar in it. A couple of weeks later, the whole family gathered outside the family home to celebrate James's 79th birthday. And they presented James with a spruced-up guitar. Surprised and delighted, James tuned it up and led four generations in a rendition of I'll Fly Away. Someone in the family recorded the moment and shared it to Facebook. He's out singing tenor and low tenor and all this stuff, so we, all of us was singing the song, and we, we just enjoyed it, didn't we? It was just a really awesome time. Dorina says some people were surprised that her family was able to express so much joy amidst the hardship. People started uh, responding to it and saying that we were singing joyful songs and the flood was behind us. We had all the debris outside and everybody was saying it's a time that you all have joy when, you know, most people don't got that joy. But I know that it all come from, from God. In the aftermath of the flood, singing together has been a source of comfort for the Boggs family. And as Ruby explains, it's also a way to reaffirm their faith after tragedy. Singing has always been a joy. When I sing and I feel God's love and his mercy, I know that he's with me. Seven months after the flood, James and Ruby are still waiting to move back into their home. The family's been navigating some illnesses, so rebuilding has taken longer than they'd hoped. But they've hung sheetrock on the walls, and a local nonprofit helped get them a new heat pump at no cost. A friend of theirs is a carpenter, and he's been helping on weekends. They hope to move back in in two to three months, before the one-year anniversary of the flood. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Millstone, Kentucky. When life said it's it's but it's down in the You know, one of my favorite parts of Appalachia is the folk culture. Um, and I love our folkway stories. It's because it's about connection and passing traditions between people. But also it's what makes Appalachia what it is. One of our most prolific folkways reporters is Zach Harold. Zach, what's up? Well, it's great to be here, Mason. Um, tell me, are there any traditions, food traditions in your family, recipes that, that you've got fond memories of that kind of span the ages of time that connect various generations. Yeah, I was thinking about I was thinking about my dad's mom's oyster casserole. Or oyster dressing. Her oyster dressing. Yeah. My dad's mom used to make dressing with and without oysters and the oyster versions kind of faded since she passed away. Well I've I've got a story that's kind of similar to that. A recipe that this family can trace all the way back to the Calabria region of Italy, where they originally came from and immigrated here to the United States and West Virginia with them. It became kind of a community staple. And then it faded away as you know modernity uh, encroached on, on some of these traditions, but is now seeing something of a revival. So immigrants coming to Appalachia, their cultural traditions mingling and fading in and out. That sounds like Appalachia in a nutshell, Zach. It's not Appalachia in a nutshell. It's Appalachia in a sausage casing. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, my God. I can't wait to hear it. Let me take you to a, a little cottage in the Canal City neighborhood of Charleston, West Virginia. So we're going to make a little a mix here that's, that's not mild or not hot, somewhere in between. How do you like it? I'll eat anything. Okay. So... Louis Argento is elbow deep in a mixing bowl filled with ground pork and a closely guarded blend of spices. His dad, Sonny Argento, is supervising. How do you say fennel in Italian? Finocchio. Finocchio. This is crushed fennel. 
No, this is a whole fennel. Oh, a whole fennel, I mean. I'm sorry. It is not crushed fennel. Most Italian sausages have um, uh, used crushed fennel. We use whole seed, and you can actually see it. We're in the dining room of Sonny's tidy little house in Charleston, West Virginia. Louie and Sonny are introducing me to the Argento family sausage, a recipe that's brought pride and acclaim to their Italian clan for nearly a century. Usually, once the meat is mixed together, the family stuffs it into natural sausage casings. But this time, Louis patties the mixture out like hamburger and throws it in a skillet. The Argentos like their sausage on pizza, in spaghetti sauce, or served on a hoagie bun, but they'll eat it for any meal of the day. Uh, we like it with fried eggs and applesauce in the morning. You know, apples and pork generally goes well together. So we do applesauce or fried apples even better. Uh, with some toast on the side. Sonny is 82 now, and he's been eating this stuff all his life. The recipe came from his mother's family, who hailed from the Calabria region of Italy. He grew up hearing stories about how his grandfather made it in the old country. So they would chop the pork up with a, with a knife, with knives. I mean, they didn't have any electricity. They couldn't grind the pork, so they would chop it up as fine as they could get it, which wasn't very fine. Mix the seasoning in it, and he had a hollowed out cow horn. He would put, my grandmother would clean the casings. If you don't know what a casing is, I'm not going to tell you. I'll tell you. They're intestines. <laughs> Natural sausage casings are animal intestines. But she would clean the casings really well. And he would skinny them up on the, the cow horn and stuff it with his thumb. Sonny's mother eventually taught the recipe to his father, Angelo Argento. His side of the family came from Sicily. Angelo actually came to West Virginia from Sicily when he was six years old. He became a coal miner at just 13. But when he wasn't below ground, Angelo was working for a local grocery store. By the time he was 26, he left the mines to start a store of his own, three and a half miles up Palton Holler in Fayette County. He called the little shop A. Argento and Company. So he said two men could stand fingertip to fingertip, and the other hands could touch the wall. But yet he sold almost everything in there. That store only existed for about five years before it burned to the ground. Angelo didn't have any insurance, and he didn't have much in the way of savings. But he was already so well-known for his work ethic and honesty that a bank in Montgomery loaned him the money to build a new store on little more than a handshake. He called this store Angelo's Market. This guy had a fourth-grade education, but nobody's fool, and you weren't going to beat him out of a nickel. In 1960, young Sonny Argento found himself stationed in the mountains of Turkey with the U.S. Air Force. He was 20 years old, away from Fayette County, West Virginia for the first time, and chronically homesick. He borrowed another airman's reel-to-reel -reel tape deck and recorded an audio message for his family back home. When they got it, they borrowed a reel-to-reel -to, -reel to make a recording of their own and mailed Sonny the tape. I think my mother says the first words. Hi, Sonny. How are you? Everybody in the family passed around the microphone, telling them about ball games they won and report cards they got and colds they caught. When it was Sonny's dad's turn, Angelo made sure to give an update on the family meat shop. And my dad said, we made some pepperoni this week. Oh, you should have been here this week. We sure had some weather. It's been below zero. Mother and I made some pepperoni the other day. Pepperoni is what Angelo called his sausage. <clears throat> And sure was cold. When he heard the tape, Sonny says he immediately pictured his father's grocery store, the meat shop and its big metal sausage mill with the feet nailed to the wooden carving block. He could see his father spooning the fragrant mix of coarse ground pork and spices into one end and turning the crank. And he could see his mother on the other end, catching the long lengths of plump pink sausage as they spilled from the machine. It did very little to alleviate Sonny's homesickness. But after five years in the Air Force, he eventually made it back to Fayette County to help his father run the business. He took over completely in 1977, a few years before Angelo passed away. Sonny raised his five kids in that market, but you can probably guess where this is going. A small, family-owned store trying to stand against the tide of big-box megamarts and the dollar stores that seemed to crop up in every Appalachian holler. More and more customers were lured away, and the Argentos just couldn't compete. Angelo's market closed in 2008 after more than 70 years in business. But here's the thing. The family didn't just lose the family business, as Louis Argento explained to me. 
we had no need to go to Kroger or Walmart or any other store to shop. And when our store closed, we realized, and which kind of sparked our business of today, that there was no quality Italian sausage in the stores. So they just kept making it. First in Sonny's kitchen, and then in a makeshift meat shop they set up in his garage. Once family and friends found out, they started getting orders. A lot of people, especially still the Italian-Americans around here, they like the sausage for their uh, Christmas dinners and, or holiday parties. So um, next thing you know, we have an order for 500 pounds of sausage. The demand was so great, Sonny decided maybe it was time to try a new kind of family business. There was a problem, though. It's fine to make sausage in your garage for family and friends, but the government doesn't really want you to sell it. Luckily, one of Sonny's friends owned a few grocery stores in Charleston and loaned the family the use of a meat shop. By making it there, the Argentos could sell their sausage in the store and offer it to local restaurants. They named their product Angelo's Old World Sausage. The label features an old photo of Sonny and his dad Angelo in ties and white aprons, grinning in front of the old store's meat case. They made the sausage in that grocery store meat shop for about two years, but they eventually outgrew the space. For one thing, they couldn't produce as much sausage as they needed. And because it wasn't a USDA-inspected processing facility, the Argentos couldn't sell their sausage in other stores. For a while, they considered building a factory of their own, but that was too big of an investment for such a small company. So they started looking around for a co-packer. After some searching, they found Wampler's Farm Sausage in Lenore City, Tennessee. It's also a family business, albeit one with a modern solar-powered meat processing facility attached. And I saw all these guys in white coats and a federal inspector walking around with their arms folded and a tear came to my eye. I remembered my mom and dad standing over the meat block making sausage and, and me helping them. And occasionally my mother would have to put her finger in it and touch it to her tongue and say, it needs more salt. And I'm thinking that we can't, we can no longer do that. <laughs> Wampler's factory can turn out as much sausage as the Argentos will ever need. And everything is still made to the family's exacting standards, from the coarseness of the ground meat to the blend of spices that gives the sausage its flavor. We sample every batch, still. So, you know, we just want to, you know, as good as Wampler is, we want to make sure our sausage that our customers are buying is consistent. Back in Sonny's kitchen, as the smell of fennel and frying pork filled the air, Louis told me the appeal of Angelo's sausage is as much about what doesn't go into it as what does. There are no binders or additives like you might find in big commercial sausages and no preservatives. And it's a joy to give people a bite of our sausage for the first time and see their face light up. And they're like, man, I've never tasted anything like this before. So yeah, so go put your corporate sausage down and get some really good stuff here that, that has no preservatives in it. But the same economic forces that put Angelo's market out of business make it difficult for Angelo's old world sausage too. Their products are now available in about 30 stores in West Virginia, Ohio, and Kentucky. But that growth has been a struggle. Louis says it can be difficult to convince managers to carry their product when every square inch of a chain grocery store's meat case is rented out to major corporate producers. And Angelo's isn't a big enough player to get into the big box store's warehouses, so their sausage doesn't appear in shopping apps. That's left the Argento family to depend on a more grassroots approach, one based on word of mouth and some social media advertising and setting up taste tests in grocery stores. They're confident that if they can just convince folks to take a bite, they'll be hooked. Yeah, well, you know, you want to take it in the dining room, Louie? Okay, yeah. I'll get you guys some utensils, maybe some bread. Once the sausage was done, Sonny and Louie set the table with a loaf of sandwich bread and a jar of their home-pickled peppers. Peppers? Yeah. As we dug in, it was clear to see that even after a lifetime of eating this stuff, Sonny and Louie don't just take pride in this family recipe. They really enjoy eating it. And that's why they're pretty sure you will, too. The big challenge is getting more people to try it and, and to realize that there is indeed a quality Italian sausage available in grocery stores. Sometimes it might cost 25 or 50 cents more, but it's worth it. You know, I'll see him or I'll say, 
you want to try a piece of a sausage? And they'll say, no thanks, and they'll just keep on going. And I want to just run up and tap them on the shoulder and say, you don't know what you're missing. If you just give us a try. Because at the end of the day, this isn't just sausage. It's the Argento family's most precious family heirloom. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold in Charleston, West Virginia. Those first two stories are part of our Folkways project, which covers arts and culture in the region. In 2023, Folkways contributed 25 stories to Inside Appalachia. To listen to them, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Later in the show, a high school football game, a street festival, and a kid's classroom are all settings in a 2023 film about how coal mining shapes Appalachian culture. This is a world that we many of us only know peripherally or we don't know at all. And I think the events get at that complexity as well. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. This is from the opening sequence of a new film called King Cole by Appalachian filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon. Papa always said that every new beginning starts with an end. It's been true for us living our lives here in this place, a place of mountains and myths. King Cole is a blend of documentary and imaginative storytelling that ask us to consider the past, present, and future of coal communities in the region. King Coal was screened at Sundance earlier this year. It also showed at the Big Ears Festival in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's where I spoke with Sheldon and two of her collaborators on the film. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Elaine McMillian Sheldon. I'm the director of King Coal. My name's Molly Bourne. I am a co-producer on King Coal. My name is Shota K. Talaferro musician, professional beatboxer, vocal percussionist, uh, breath artist. Breath art plays a big part in the soundscape of King Cole. But first, I asked Sheldon about a particular scene in the movie that took my breath away. I love this film. I mean, it, it showed an Appalachia that I'm very familiar with. It showed the Appalachia that I know. But it also showed an Appalachia I don't know. So my first question is, how did you get that incredible coal mining footage? That was when I was making the Project Hollow in 2012 in McDowell County. And I had been trying to get access to a mine over and over and over and just kept getting shut down. Nobody wanted me to film. And that mine actually um, was one that my, I think my brother and my dad both worked at separate times. And so they were able to help me build the trust there. I was allowed to witness one shift, basically. We go into the mine. We see Bobby Lee, who's the miner, operating a continuous miner, which is a massive piece of machinery that he stands away from with a remote control and controls all of it while he's looking over his back, making sure the coal is going back in the right direction and not, you know, that he's not pinning someone against the wall. With that type of machinery, basically, it's just a really violent scene where the machine is just crunching into this earth and just going at it. Um, and I, th- I don't think most people know what that looks like, but it's loud, it's dusty, um, it's wet because they're spraying so much water to keep the dust down. And it's a really intense job, a really intense job. And it, it shows you how on edge miners can get. So 
with that, we get out of the mine and then we go into the garden with my papa, where I tell a story, which is very true, not just for my papa, but for everybody that's worked in the mines, that you just don't sneak up behind them because they've lived a life where they have been scared of getting pinned by rock or rock falling on them or whatever. And it's one of my favorite sequences because it shows both this very like aggressive experience that people have and then this gentleness um, that they occupy when they're above ground, just as human beings, like tending their gardens. And I think that juxtaposition is true for a lot of people that do that work that they often don't get, aren't seen for that, you know. Can you all talk a little bit about how you kind of initially conceived this through these scenes um, and through the journalistic aspect and, and kind of how it how it came together to make what we saw on the screen last night? I don't know how it started, but we were both interested in these expressions of coal-related culture, these objects, these places. And I remember being aware of these for years. Like my best friend in high school had a coal miner's daughter bumper sticker on her car. We've always seen these, these emblems and these expressions of pride. But then we've also seen these events, these really, like these places where people come together in the community to talk about this this place that we don't often see. Like I have never been in a coal mine except for the exhibition coal mine where we filmed and the one in Lynch, Kentucky as well. This is a world that we many of us only know peripherally or we don't know at all. And I think the events get at that complexity as well. Like the scene in the classroom where Fred Powers is talking about his experience underground. And there's that moment where he's talking about the, the methane explosion. It's the most dangerous job in the coal mines in a pace top dollar cause you go down in a place and there's a place about as big as this room. And I was sitting towards the back of my machine. And I rumped down on it. I'm gonna go out and get me a load. And I rumped down on it and getting ready to swing out there to get me a load and boom, big methane explosion happened. and come right in front of me. Man, two more seconds. And I would have been right into that thing, and I heard if a miner gets caught in a methane explosion, it'll burn all the skin off your body, eyeballs out of your socket, and most likely you're going to be body parts. Uh, I mean, there's there's some levity in the way that he is he is talking about it, but it's also really tragic. And then later in that scene, a kid asks him, do you miss being a coal miner? And he says, I, yes, I do. And it, he says it without missing a beat. And that captures that complexity, I think. The film started as us capturing th these real-life moments, so as a verite documentary. And then, so we were started filming in 2019, and when COVID hit in 2020, like many film teams and like everyone else, we stopped working for a bit. And so many of the coal events that we filmed before the pandemic did not come back. So that was an interesting and I think really really special thing that we captured a lot of these moments as a living archive. But you were really interested in bringing in your f family's experience. And I shifted into this, what has been described as a an essay film or an experimental film, a hybrid documentary. And I think it needed to become that to say what we needed to say. It was all really exciting to film because it was real and it was so heartfelt um, and it was also all very ironic um, and we really felt like it was lacking the context of understanding the psychology and psychology is impossible to show. The psyche is an impossible thing to show so we had to think of other ways, cinematic techniques, dreamscapes, other things to take us into that realm that would make this more universal and not an oddity. I, I think that the people at the center of it and their resilience has always been what's interesting to both of us and their dignity, right? And their choice to stay and how hard, how difficult that's been. And usually they're depicted as not having choice. And so I think we wanted to show people as actually making a choice to stay. How did you start working with Shodake? The sound team is made of all stars, including Shodake. Last year at Big Ears in Knoxville, where I live, Shodake came to perform. I just almost fell off my seat because I didn't even know what he was doing with his mouth to make these sounds that sounded like nature and sounded like life and death and all these things, all the themes of the film, and I just was blown away. I didn't know what he did was even a thing, but when I heard it, I knew the film couldn't live without it. Would you mind explaining a little about what breathwork is? Maybe like a short demo? Right, okay, so uh, some of the sounds that I provided for the film 
um, for musical composition purposes uh, are as follows. Um, so wind sounds like this. And then there are a lot of sounds uh, where it's clearly identified as human breath. So inhalations and gasps. And then, uh, oh yeah, this is another standout uh, method or technique. Um, I call it overtone breath. And there's a warbling effect that sits at the center of the vocal technique and uh, sound experience of it. It sounds like this. That was Shodake Talaferro, Miley Bourne, and Elaine McMillian Sheldon. You can hear the rest of my interview on our website. King Cole had a good year. It appeared on screens across the country, won awards at film festivals, and last we checked had an 88% fresh rating on the website Rotten Tomatoes. King Cole is still screening in select cities, including close to me in Roanoke, Virginia. We'll post a link on our website, wvpublic.org. There's nothing like a good old summer road trip. Out on the roads of Appalachia, you never know what you'll see. And every now and then, you pass something that makes you say, what was that? Like a gigantic basket towering over the edge of a town, or a lighthouse in the middle of the mountains. In 2023, Inside Appalachia's Xander Alloy took a trip to Chester, West Virginia to learn the story behind a classic roadside attraction there, a souvenir stand known as the world's largest teapot. If you drive west across the very tip of West Virginia's northern panhandle, right before Route 30 crosses the river into Ohio, you'll see what looks like a 14-foot-tall red-and-white teapot. You know, it's really whimsical and set out in this green grassy area, and it's just, you know, it's really cute. <laughs> That's Lissa Ducharme. She and her friend Maria DeLuca are from California, and we're taking a road trip with another friend who lives in Pennsylvania. Once they found out about the landmark, DeLuca said, they added it to their itinerary. Well, we had some time, and then we saw that there was the world's largest teapot, so of course we had to stop. And honestly, we're not disappointed. Painted in large red letters across the wood and metal building are the words, world's largest teapot. Underneath are five windows labeled souvenirs, postcards, candy, pop, and hot dogs. On a stone pillar off to the side sits another, smaller, metal cream pitcher marked with the year 1938. Uh, we're very proud of it. It's our great icon for the city. A lot of people come from all over the United States to see the teapot and are just fascinated. That's Susan Heinemann. She's the event coordinator for the city of Chester and caretaker of the teapot. As a child... Heinemann spent a lot of time near the attraction. I was totally fascinated by it, especially being a, a little kid, and here's this huge teapot right next door to my grandma's. I love to sit on the front steps of my grandparents' house and watch the people come and go over to teapot. And when I could buy money off my grandparents or my dad, uh, I would go over and get my penny candy from it. Just loved the teapot. The teapot is a symbol of an area well-known for its ceramics industry. Just down the road in Newell is the headquarters of the iconic Fiesta Tableware Company. Across the river, East Liverpool, Ohio, once manufactured half of all dinnerware produced in the U.S. William Devon, also known as Babe, owned a pottery outlet on West Virginia State Route 2, which passes through Chester. 
The story goes that back in 1938, he bought a giant barrel-shaped advertisement for Hire's Root Beer from Pennsylvania and had it hauled to the front of his store. It was cut in half, covered in sheet metal, and the handle, spout, and lid were added. The teapot served as a snack bar and souvenir stand, and to attract passing motorists to Devon's store. The smaller cream pitcher sat on the roof of the store itself. Throughout the decades, the store changed hands more than once, but apart from a couple of years during World War II, the teapot stayed open. Heinemann worked there while she was in junior high in the 1960s. They had a artware building in the back, and I would go in there and dust the glassware. I got a hot dog and a root beer, or I got a dollar. But, she remembers, they sold more than just teacups to tourists. Underneath <laughs> the counters outside were like nude figurines and stuff, and a lot of the truck drivers would stop by there. They would buy cigarettes out of the teapot, and they would go buy one of these nude figurines to take wherever they were going. And of course, being young, I wasn't allowed in there. But being a teenager, I peaked. By the early 1980s, though, the teapot's time was over. In 1984, CNP Telephone purchased the land and tore down the pottery outlet. The teapot remained but sat vacant. Three years later, the phone company agreed to donate the teapot to the city. It moved from place to place around town over the next several years. In 1990, it finally found its new home, a piece of land near the highway donated by the state. After a few false starts, the city of Chester and a group of volunteers completed its first full restoration later that year. But it wouldn't be until the early 2010s that Heinemann, along with the Parks Board, would develop a regular plan of maintenance and fundraising for the teapot. Today, the teapot's a well-known symbol of the area. It appears in work by artists from around the state and is featured as a location in the video game Fallout 76. Some people even choose to celebrate major life events there. I think that it's just pretty cool that we're the first and only people ever to get married in front of the world's largest teapot. I spoke with Abby Mont and her husband Zach Murray over the phone. They're both originally from East Liverpool, Ohio, but currently live in Chester. After a mix-up with their paperwork in Ohio, they had to scramble to get a marriage license over the border. They got one, but that meant the ceremony had to be performed in West Virginia. It was kind of just a joke. <laughs> um, someone just said, you should go get married at the teapot, and then we were just like, yeah, let's do it. About 10 of us, our closest friends and family, we all drove down at about 11 o'clock at night, and we had to have everybody turn on their high beam so that we could see. We walked down the aisle, said our vows, and got married in front of the teapot. They say they plan to make the teapot a part of their future, too. We'll probably make it a tradition to visit the teapot on our big anniversaries, whether we live around here or somewhere else. You're welcome to walk up and take a look at the teapot any day you want. But to experience it in its full glory, you need to come on the second Saturday of August for Teapot Day. It's the one day of the year when it opens back up as a snack bar and sells unique souvenirs like t-shirts and fiesta wear ornaments. All that said, here's where I have to drop a bit of a bombshell. Since 2010, Chester, West Virginia has in fact not been the home of the world's largest teapot. That distinction belongs to the Maitan Tea Museum in Guizhou Province in China, which stands over 240 feet tall. While the record may be gone, what remains is the history the teapot embodies. Even though it's moved down the roadways, it still stands as a monument to the town around it and a reminder of the region's industrial legacy. The city of Chester's proud to have the teapot here and everything else has been tore down, historical. We still have our teapot. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Xander Alloy. Farming and agriculture are a huge part of life in Appalachia. Whether it's growing a garden or picking up fruit from the market when it comes into season, but climate change is affecting the fruit industry. Some fruits and vegetables found in the Deep South are moving northward into Appalachia, including some varieties of Georgia peaches. Jess Mador had this story of fruit tree migration. At a farm about an hour from Atlanta, peach trees extend across the horizon in endless rows. 
Standing in the dirt, wearing rubber boots and a green jacket, is farmer Lawton Pearson. This is his farm. His family's been growing peaches here for generations. I'm the fifth generation. We've been growing peaches here since 1885. Pearson Farm is growing about 200,000 peach trees here. At this time of year, their twisty branches are bare. The trees are dormant. It's a critical time for peach trees. They need hundreds of so-called chill hours with temperatures between 32 and 45 degrees. Without enough cold, they won't produce fruit. It's just like you when you don't get enough sleep, right? You wake up cranky and you're not very productive. This is what happened not long ago, Pearson says. In 2017, we had a, a really warm winter. It's not the first time that's happened. And when it's dramatic, it can have a dramatic effect on the flowers. They won't open. They don't pollinate. They don't set. That year, Georgia's peach industry lost roughly 80% of its crop. It's a tricky business. Pearson says even when peach trees do get the chill hours they need to bloom, their fruit can be wiped out by a sudden frost, like last March. Everything was going right. But then March 12th, it got down to 20 for 12 hours. And we were out here burning hay bales and running wind machines and doing everything. The harvest produced just 60% of the farm's peach crop. It hurt blueberries, it hurt us. That's difficult to make a crop when it gets that cold. What they need is a good, consistent, cool winter. Pretty much every fruit tree species needs chill hours. Mirjana Bulotovic-Danilovic teaches at West Virginia University. She's an expert horticulturalist who specializes in tree fruits. In West Virginia, the two major ones are peaches and apples. And as temperatures increase, she says producers are dealing with new problems because fruit trees are really sensitive to even minute changes in ambient temperature. All of this means trouble. There starting the season earlier with this climate change because it's getting warmer earlier and they're setting those poor little trees for a late frost injury. More flooding and extreme drought are also increasingly common across Appalachia. To help West Virginia fruit farmers survive into a hotter future, Bolotovich Danilovich advises them to diversify and try new varieties that need less chill time. You definitely need to, instead of having, let's say, Golden Delicious, Red Delicious, you're going to go with maybe Pink Lady and you're going to go with some other varieties that have much lower requirement. The same thing goes with the peaches. Soon, she says, West Virginia peaches could look and taste more like peaches that are now grown further south. You're going to be kind of moving some of these peaches from Georgia into West Virginia and replacing something that was a staple in your production. You're going to go down and find some of these Georgia peaches and southern varieties. She says farmers are used to dealing with change and adapting to survive. But numbers show this could get harder over time. Pam Knox is a University of Georgia agricultural climatologist. She heads up a network of weather stations that have recorded more than three decades of weather and climate data. There's ups and downs for sure, but it's definitely been rising. Computer models say that's going to continue, and that's something that farmers are going to have to deal with. For now, across the region, farmers are working with scientists. They're testing new peach, apple, and other fruit varieties that can thrive despite shrinking chill hours and unpredictable growing seasons. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jess Mador. So I'm in my 40s. A lot of my friends and I are starting to have to play a bigger role in taking care of our parents. I know that's true across Appalachia, where we have tight-knit families and an aging population. That's tricky to begin with, but it gets more complicated for loved ones with chronic health problems, declining mobility, and dementia. Through 2023, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas explored the issue with this series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. 
one part of the series looked at dementia. Eric spoke with Marshall University professor Dr. Lynn Goebel. Help me understand what's going on in somebody's mind or what's happening when, um, when Alzheimer's, dementia, when those, those sorts of things start happening. From a pathologic point of view, I can tell you that uh, 20 years before someone develops symptoms, they have stuff going on in their brain. Oh, interesting. So you're already developing these amyloid plaques in the brain. Uh, and then usually someone will start noticing that they're having some trouble with their memory. There's usually their short-term memory and they may still be functioning well. <clears throat> and that uh, we call mild cognitive impairment. And it's a precursor uh, sometimes to the full-blown dementia. And that stage lasts about five years where someone has some problems, they know they have trouble, but they're still able to get it together and they use you know, lists and other things, their, their smartphones uh, to help them keep on track and, and function well. This is a, a layer or a plaque that's forming within the brain that's causing the brain to misfire effectively? I mean, is it? Probably. And then there's also uh, the next stage where you have actual... Uh, buildup of protein inside the neurons or the nerve cells. And this particular protein is toxic and it kills the cells. So as the disease progresses, you're going to have death of these nerve cells. And that's where people lose function and they lose memories. Okay. So the, the plaque is the first stage, then the, this, this protein buildup uh, is, is kind of a secondary stage, that's, but really is where the, the trouble is, sets in. We're still in the, we, you know, finding out exactly what causes this disease. And uh, initially, you know, we thought, oh, if we get rid of this plaque, then we would be able to cure this disease. Well, some of the drugs that are out there uh, that they're still studying uh, are, are targeting that but we're not seeing the results that we hoped for in, uh, in people with early stage disease, we may be seeing stabilization, but we still need to do more study on that kind of drug. Is there a test for this? I mean, is there any way to know definitively early on or is it something you suspect and so right now we diagnose this clinically. So you'll go to a specialist, which could be either a geriatrician or a psychiatrist or a neurologist. And that would be the kind of doctor that would do this specialized testing. And, uh, you know, we, we do memory tests and we also look at the patient and see how they're functioning because that functioning part is, is also key to making a diagnosis of actual dementia as opposed to that mild cognitive impairment thing. Does that help any to, to have that kind of diagnosis by, by some kind of test? Is, is, that, is there any reason to do that versus the, the progression? I mean, there, yes. even if you found out 20 years before the significant onset, we don't really have any medications to treat it. We, there's no, there's nothing, there's no surgery to remove it. So they did a study where they did this amyloid PET scan on people. And the people that we found out that had probable Alzheimer's disease based on that study, based on that scan, we did treat them differently. We gave them more medications. Families were able to plan better for the future. And I think it did make a difference in those patients. So I, I think it is a good thing to try to get that diagnosis made. Now, as far as uh, you know, disease-modifying treatments, we don't have that right now, but I think it's in the near future. Let's talk about caregivers for a moment. What, as a geriatrician, I assume that that's one of your. You're also working with the families, and so what do families need to know? What do caregivers need to know? I always recommend the Alzheimer's Disease Association. They have an 800 number that's 24 hours. So if you have a, a crisis situation, you can call and talk to someone who, who can possibly help you right at that moment. 
They also have a wonderful website with all kinds of very important information on there. And depending on the stage of the patient, uh, they can help with a variety of things. Uh, such as in the early stages, you want to do uh, some planning and make sure you have um, all your legal paperwork and power of attorney in place uh, and also make plans for yourself as far as being able to say what you want to happen in the event that things get worse. And then later on, there's other, you know, other stages of disease where you're dealing with communication issues and the caregivers really need training on that. We know that medication for behaviors is not great. In fact, certain medications can increase the risk of death in people with dementia. So we try to get caregivers to take training and to learn how to get around certain behaviors. For instance, if a patient is not wanting to take a bath, which happens very regularly, um, you know, how, how can you deal with this in a way to get the patient to do it, but uh, that's not going to be horrible for everyone. So, uh, so there's, there's a lot of training out there for caregivers. That was Lynn Goble from the Hanshaw Geriatric Center. To hear more in the series, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Happy New Year. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Morgan Wade, Hazel Dickens, Steve Earle, Paul Loomis, Jeff Ellis, and Tim Bing. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.